I'm so glad that you joined us this morning, and I want to turn your hearts to the Lord's Word. I want to encourage you uh, this morning as we continue on through this series of Discover, what it means for us to individually take the commitment to understand God's Word for ourselves. And so uh, I do want to share with you an experience that my family and I had that uh, um, as you guys drove in today, you probably went by a few signs on the side of the road that, let's be honest, you might have ignored one or two of them, right? Uh, They say that there are 500 million signs, kind of like this one. Uh, There's 500 different kinds of them in our country and 500 million signs that are in the U.S. I don't know how many you went by today, but have you ever noticed as you're driving, those of you who drive, that there's times where you can kind of go on autopilot and no Tesla was involved, right? Like that you kind of arrive at your destination, you haven't thought about it. Well, I'm um, a sucker for adventurous vacations and I talked my family into doing this twice now that we uh, did a one way RV rental, where we drove about 2,500 miles in a rental RV. We got a special deal out of a place in Elkhart, Indiana. And they don't tell you what size of vehicle you're going to get before you do it. Um, and both times, these, these are the two vehicles that we got. So one of them, they're both over 30 feet long. And um, so some of you are like, yeah, what's the big deal? Well, this is what I normally drive, a little Toyota, okay? So, so let's just say, like, you see those signs and you kind of ignore them, especially the one that, was, that I showed you before that had the elevation of bridges and things, right? And, and you see those things and you, when you're driving one of these things, I'm just going to tell you, it is active driving, right? You're paying attention to every detail. And, and the, the reason why you do that is because you want to avoid this. Uh, thankfully, that's not one of my pictures, right? So, so it can not only be dangerous, it can be catastrophic, right? And what I can guarantee you is that on, on the road, just up the street from this, there was a sign that this person ignored. And today, as we turn our hearts towards studying God's word, I want to challenge you that this is an active process, that as we pursue understanding and interpreting scripture accurately, it's important that we don't just find ourselves kind of asleep at the wheel in this area. And and I want to admit that this morning, I, I had the privilege of growing up in a home where I was exposed to the truth of God's word from a young age. And Over time, it's possible for us to be exposed to it in such a way that we start to take it for granted, or we 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 choose to allow other people to go through the process of interpreting it for us, and that can be okay. But this morning, if I challenge you with my goals of this morning, is to encourage you that you have the capability to improve in your ability to interpret Scripture, and I want to believe with you this morning that Satan wants nothing more than to under mind, your, your understanding of scripture and your ability to trust it as the living word of God. One of the things that he desperately wants to do with you when it comes to your ability to understand God's word is to have you check your brain at the door. He wants you to ignore the part of you that engages in that process with your mind. I love this passage of scripture found in Mark chapter 12, the repeat of the great Shema that is this declaration in Mark chapter 12, verse 13. It says, uh, um, verse, verse 30, it says this, and he said this to them. He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. The part I want to focus in on this morning is our minds, that, that God wants us to engage. This is an active process, that he wants us to engage in our understanding of God's word, to take it personally, 
Then the first point this morning that stands out to me is understanding the Bible, which is really our goal. It ought to be our goal is to understand the God of the Bible, but to understand the Bible requires immersing ourselves in the process of interpretation. This is an active and engaging process. Don't check your brain at the door, right? Uh, I love this image of Homer Simpson and his brain, right? Uh, you want to be a person who's willing to ask the hard questions, willing to, to question why why this passage of scripture is here. What is God trying to communicate to me? We don't want to just be people who are hearers of the word, but we want to be doers of it. And part of that is an intellectual exercise. No, it's Holy Spirit driven. God is at work within us. And some have criticized Christianity historically for being the opiate of the masses or that it's not a thinking man's religion, that, that people check their brains when it comes to understanding truth. And I'll just say this to you, that, that God honors us for our obedience, but your and my faith, understanding Christianity from God's terms, is that it's not a blind faith. It's actually a very well-informed faith. It's a faith that allows us to say, Lord, what are you teaching me? What is, have you exposed in your word to me, about me, and about yourself? And so I, I will encourage you, again, that this needs to be taken personally. This is not an exercise where deep down we know something is false and we have to take this blind leap of obedience, but instead it's one that we allow ourselves to ask the hard questions of Scripture and then to see the answers flow out of that. One of the scary things that has happened historically is people have depended on other people to do that work for them. And the end result have been tragic cults that push a person away from understanding the authority and truth of God's word. I shared with you last week, family members of ours that found themselves in a, in a very deep, dark cult that ignored the truth of God's word, but it started sounding very much like what the faith is that we hold dear. So we don't depend upon another person. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm chapter 1, one of my favorite passages of Scripture. And in Psalm chapter 1, David describes his love for God's Word, and he describes the difference between a person who takes this personally, how they are established and rooted, and the person who allows themselves to be kind of tossed in the wind, to be disengaged. Listen to these words, Psalm chapter uh, 1, beginning in verse 1. He says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on this law, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In that, all that he does, he prospers. Love this image. It's something thriving, right? And it's, it's God's word at the epicenter of the middle of it being the source of a person's thriving. It's the word of life, right? I think it's important as we go through this exercise today that, that one of the things that I'm going to say to you in different ways is that I think Satan wants to undermine our ability to take God at his word. In fact, what Satan wants to do, and, and we'll read this next section in a second, is that he wants us to, to have doubts about the authority of God's word. He wants us to have doubts. This is so common in the culture that we live in today that they'll say things to us like, if you're going to disregard one portion of scripture, then how is it that you call scripture authoritative? So, so why do you think anything in this ancient word is actually true? 
And, and I want to encourage you that it's important, it's important for us in this exercise of making great observation about Scripture and then interpreting it accurately. And then, this is probably the hardest part, after we interpret it accurately is to apply it in our lives. When we go through that exercise, what we do is we see ourselves having the privilege of thriving. just want to make one, one observation from this particular text. And that is one of the things that our culture is doing right now is that it's undermining this idea that there's a difference between men and women. And, and you look at this first verse that's here when it says, blessed is the man who walks in the counsel of the wicked. If you have the ESV study Bible, a few study Bibles, there's a little number next to that. And it actually makes the statement that this particular word in Hebrew, as it was written, is a word that is common and it talks about Mankind or people. And so when I read this passage of scripture, I say, blessed, this applies to all of us. This is not just a man, a passage that's written just to men, but it's a passage that's written to all people. And we celebrate that truth. But I want to clarify with you, as we study God's word, there's going to be times when God recognizes a distinction between how he wired men and how he wired women. And some of you say, amen. Some of you say, I don't, I don't know if that's even okay for us to say anymore. Hey, I live with four women in my household, and there's a big difference between men and women, all right? <laughs> Uh, that, that God wired us differently, and that's okay. God designed us differently, and it doesn't make one lesser or greater than the other. And so to accurately interpret this passage of Scripture, some of your translations do this, where it says, blessed is the person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. And then in this context, I think it's great, because that's what he's saying. This applies to all of us. But it's important just because it gets complicated in some of the other passages of Scripture that the entire concept is not one that we disregard. Do you understand? So, so as we talk through this, even just in a passage like this, it's important for us to be, be honest with ourselves. What is it saying? And let's also be honest about this. This is one of the most difficult things about all of this is if what God's Word teaches us goes against what we think is right or the way we think it should be or uh, against our convictions or whatever. We have to be people, if we're really truly submitting to the authority of God's word, we have to be people who say, I'm gonna live up to that. I'm gonna step up to that. It's not that we get to decide which bits and pieces that we wanna keep, right? And so here he says, blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. And then he goes on to describe the other individual. And I pray that this is none of us in this room. Verse four, it says this, the wicked are not so, for they are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. It's important for us to understand that this is one of those times where as we study this, that it's saying to us that the person who takes God at his word is going to be blessed. And I think that, that it's important for us to understand that, that there's, there's this internal challenge that we have about saying, I'm going to obey this. I'm going to submit to this. I'm going to apply this in my life. And, um, and it's easy for us if we're, if we're not um, deliberate about it, if we're casual about it, to just find ourselves lost, you know? Um, my, my wife reminded me of this story this last week. On one of our anniversaries, uh, before our children were born, I took her to a hotel that was in Dallas, and uh, it was a bit of a drive, and it was uh, kind of in that in-between time period where I didn't have a GPS. I accidentally left my cell phone at the hotel, and I didn't have a trip tick, 
AAA, triptych, anybody know what I'm talking about? Like two of you know what I'm talking about, right? So there was no map, no atlas. But I figured, ah, I've been there before. It's one of our favorite restaurants. I can find it. She told somebody this last week that it took me five hours to get back. Um, I don't know how true that was. It was probably something more like four hours and 45 minutes, you know? So, so I, had to, I had to ask yeah, people at the gas stations. I had to, and I got all kinds of terrible advice, right? I'm bouncing all around. And then I finally got the food. And why are you making fun of me? That hurts, yeah? I, I finally got the food. And then I had to figure out how to get back to the hotel, right? You know, it was, it was a mess, right? This description of a person who is depending on the wrong things, or who's lost is a description of many in our culture today. And what the Lord is challenging us, I believe, in this simple truth is to say, we don't have to be blown in the wind, tossed to and fro from the person, the last person who gave us counsel, or the last person who said, this is how we ought to believe, the last news article that we listened to, the last counsel that we received from the last bit of advice that we were given, but instead we can find ourselves rooted and established in the truth of God's word. Amen, right? We can do this. But in order to do that, it requires us to take this process very personally. As a church, we've been studying for the last several weeks a process of interpretation. It's a little different than our normal Sunday mornings. But um, this process comes from a professor of mine at Dallas Seminary, and he and his son wrote an excellent book called Living by the Book. And it's based upon a three-step process. It's not rocket science, but it's really, really helpful. First is making really good observation of the text. What's in the Bible? What does it say? Uh, what is repeated? What are the specific specifics of what scripture teaches. The next, and it's the one that we're going to spend these, this week, the next week, or next week as well in, uh, as we look at some very difficult passages to interpret, we're going to focus in on interpretation. What does this passage of scripture mean? And this is an area that requires great investment. It, it requires deliberate pursuit of truth, but it's possible for us to do. And it's important for us to remember as we study God's word that he is not hiding his truth from us. And it's important as well, the last step that we'll look at is, is application. What does this mean for us? This isn't just to puff, puff us up, to make us feel smarter, to be able to Bible quiz answers that help, help us for just being smarter than the person beside us. But instead, this is truth that allows us to set the very course of our life based on the truth of God's word. So uh, the, this, this tin can image of the tin can telephone is important to me as we go through this, this series because it communicates that there was an intended meeting of the original authors inspired by the Holy Spirit. And now as recipients of that meaning, it's important for us to receive it well. We can't cut the string if we want to be people who accurately and humbly interpret the truth of God's word. So I want to practice this together with you. Quick exercise because it came out of our worship service last Sunday. So in the early time period, we read a passage of scripture that came out of Psalm 33 verse 2. I want to put that up on the screen. So, so this was read in between a couple of the songs that we sang last Sunday. And uh, the statement was, is this in the ESV. It says, give thanks to the Lord with the lyre, make melody to him with the harp of 10 strings. And some of you would look back with me and you'd say, hey, we don't have a 10 string lyre on our stage. So are we rebelling against what God's word teaches? 
And so I want to go through an exercise with you to try to help you to understand. So the first thing, if we have any Hebrew scholars, we can throw the Hebrew up here. You can find this pretty easy online with a, a place like Bible Hub. And remember, we don't read left to right, but right to left. And it's maybe appropriate if you can see the gray section up there, that that is the personal name of God. It's kind of neat how this shows up on our English translations when it's in all caps the word that we understand as Jehovah um, or Adonai as the Jewish culture adapted it to protect the honor and glory of the name of the Lord or uh, in the Latin version of this, it became the Jehovah that you and I know of. So personal name of God. So what's great in English translations, a hint for us is that, that Jehovah or the one true God, the Yahweh, the God of the universe, his personal name is at the focus of this passage. We want to glorify God. We want to glorify the one true God, right? And so we see this in the text, and I'm using the New American Standard. Some of you have been in settings. Confess with me if you've been in this setting. You've been in a small group. You're all circled around, and somebody says, hey, we're going to read this passage of Scripture, and maybe we're going to go around the room, and somebody picks out their translation. They start reading it, and you're like, that doesn't sound anything like what's in my Bible, right? I think that's one of the ways that Satan loves to undergird our, or to put a threat at, to our understanding of the authority of God's Word. Because we go, wait a second. Which one of these is the Bible, right? And it's important for us to remember that in its original form, this was written in Hebrew or Greek. And so in this case, it was written in Hebrew. And so as the translators translate in English, they some use a different style. So this one is an interesting one, the ESV, which I especially appreciate when it comes to preaching God's word and to understand it is written in more of a formal equivalence style of translation. So sometimes it doesn't really sound like great English, but it's attempting to go word for word word for the words that were in the original Hebrew. So sometimes it's a little cumbersome. Uh, for how many of you have an NIV study Bible, either with you or at home or NIV Bible, New International Version? Um, so let's, let's look at the New International Version, and I'll just remind you of something that's a little complicated with this one. Many of you, like me, grew up with the New International Version, um, but it was the one that was before 2011. In 2011, they updated the New International Version. They changed some of the language did some gender neutral things that were um, helpful sometimes, sometimes other times not helpful. But if you look for the NIV, I think this is another way Satan kind of discourages us. So we're like, wait a second, I memorized that verse in this version, and now I go open up my Bible, and I can't even find it in that version anywhere. Well, the reason is that Zondervan, the publishers, made an update of that Bible. It's okay to use that one. This is a little bit, a uh, little bit less of a focus on word for word. It's called dynamic equivalence. Is the style of translation. Some of you guys are like, I am so asleep already, Sean. Um, stick with me. We're going to get through this. So, um, this kind of translation, though, when you look at it, kind of look at the words, you kind of say, wait, wait a second. It's pretty similar. It seems. Similar. So some of you have the King James Version, right? The most popular version of the Bible translated around the world and in, especially into English, written in a different, uh, it's like a 12th grade level. Um, some of you know that this is a hard to read, kind of old English at times. But um, this also uses a little different manuscripts in terms of what it translates from. But again, similar meaning. You read the details of it and you kind of go, all right, so we're trying to figure this out. Um, but uh, you also know, like when we talk about translation styles, that there's 
There's paraphrases as well that kind of focus completely on meaning. I love this one. Uh, the message translation makes this a little bit easier to understand, but uh, it says, um, use guitars to reinforce your hallelujahs. Um, play his praise on a grand piano. So now we need a grand piano on the stage, right? So, so that's complicated, right? So, but, but do you understand what he's saying, right? Do you, do you understand what, what the author or what these different English translations are saying? Is they're saying you ought to praise the Lord, right? You ought to glorify the Lord. In fact, um, the, the most significant way that you and I can understand the truth of God's word is to just take the passage of scripture and put it in its context. So I want to put the ESV back up there real quick. And so you guys have seen this verse. And let's just look at the verse before it and the verse after it. It's immediate context. And it says this, shout for joy in the Lord. Oh, you righteous, praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of 10 strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. So do you know what that context just tells us? It tells us that what, what David is saying is, we want to be people who praise the Lord, right? And, and he's not getting hung up on how many strings are on your lyre. Hey, by the way, you can buy one for $49.99 on Amazon right now if you want one. Um, you know, but, but the thing about that is, is that what he's not saying to us is that we have to understand completely how it was used. These are pictures of ancient lyres. I don't think you can get those for $49.99. But, but what he's saying to us is that we are... Our goal when it comes to worshiping the Lord, and this is our goal here, whether it's with the grand piano, whether it's with the 10-string lyre, or whether it's with just our voices, I won't break out my recorder, I promise, but whatever it is that we use to bring glory and honor to the Lord, what we're supposed to do is to praise his name, right? So it's about the Lord. And so when we, when we look even at the context afterwards, the verse, verse three, what we see is that he's even saying that, that sometimes this is even with a new song. This is in a new way. This is in, this, so, so don't get hung up on having to do it in the way it's always been done, right? But we understand that the privilege that we have is to sing praise to the Lord. So so what, what I appreciate about this is that us using just this example, because it came up in our services last week, it gives us an example of one of those ways that we can find ourselves just saying, Lord, what do you really mean by this? And I think that the, the key for us, any person who truly wants to be a student of God's word has to begin from the premise that what God's word says is going to be what I'm going to live up to, not what I hope it says. And it's important for us to understand the second point this morning is God's word does not require my approval for it to be true. It doesn't require me to be the one who says, yes, that sounds like God, or yes, I'm willing to do. I used to have this happen in my office and as a marriage and family pastors, I'd have a young couple who'd sit with me and they'd say that they're, they're living together. And God's word's pretty clear about intimacy, sexual intimacy being designed for the confines of marriage. And so they're, they're living together and I'd, I'd, I'd look at God's word together with them and then they'd say, yeah, that, but, but God doesn't understand how expensive it would be for us to pay for two homes or God, God doesn't want us to not be happy, right? And, and they, they talk through those. And then every once in a while, there'd be a couple as we talk through it who they'd just say, you know what? God says that this is the way he wants it to be. I don't understand it, but I'm going to submit to that truth. 
And it was incredible the difference between the two. So for so many people, what they choose to do is they say, I want it on my terms, right? But when it rubs up against what I want it to be, then which wins, right? And in this context, what I want to encourage you in is that God's word does not require my, my approval. It doesn't require me to, to confirm that it is what God wants for me, but instead it's just my ability to submit to the authority and the truth of God's word. So the truth of God's word is not based upon my personal feelings, my tastes, or my opinions. Isn't that hard though, sometimes? If, if we're really honest, that's difficult. It's difficult to come under authority. The meaning of the text is in the text. It is not in my subjective response to the text. I think the culture that surrounds us they, they want to look at us and often they want to say to, about Christians, they want to say, well, well, you don't live by those standards. You, you say they're God's standards, but you don't live by them. I think that's really convicting to me. That should challenge us. If we say that we believe it's God's word, we ought to live by the standard of God's word. So this doesn't mean, what does this mean to me today? That approach is separating the original meaning from that, that was inspired by the Holy Spirit for God's design to teach us what it means to have God's word be a mirror for us to understand who we are and who we aren't. That's not what it is intended to, that is what it's intended to be. It doesn't separate us from that simple truth. And so, so we have to accept, and I love this in Philippians chapter 2, 14, it, it warns us that our natural inclinations, our, our natural ability to kind of see things from our own perspective can be warped and twisted. And what, what our desire ought to be is people who hold fast to the word of God. Check this out in Philippians 2, 14. This is great. It says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. The, the natural baseline for our generation is to be crooked and twisted. But he says this in verse 16, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Holding fast to the word of life is what God is challenging us to do. That's what it means for us to be people of his word. And so this, this I don't like or agree with this approach to life is not the right question. But instead, what does God's word teach me about my approach to life? And so when they, when they rub up against each other, which one wins? And so what, I, what I'm saying in, in different ways is the truth of God's word is not relative. But instead, it is authoritative. And I think that some are falsely teaching today that the Bible meant one thing when it was written, but an extremely different thing today. The scriptures do not change in their meaning over time. There is only one true, proper, and correct meaning of every passage of scripture. And this is the art of interpretation, us, us wrestling with, well, what does it mean? What did it mean? How do we interpret? Do you guys remember last week I talked about the holy kiss? thing. And, and, I, and I said, none of, you none of you greeted me today with a holy kiss. And we talked about, the, actually, um, somebody, somebody greeted me with these today. I thought that was pretty funny. Um, so so you, guys, you guys remember that, that as we talked about that process, that one of the things that we recognized is the Apostle Paul says that we ought to greet one another with a holy kiss. And as we go through the process of interpretation, what we understand is this has nothing to do with it, right? But what it has to do with is us, with us greeting one another 
graciously, kindly, warmly, recognizing the presence of others that, that join us. And, and then that's an exercise that we need to be challenged to do because we don't always do that naturally. That's an appropriate interpretation of that passage of scripture. What, what we have to accept, however, is that there's going to be times when they're more difficult than that. They're, they're, they're translations that really confront the very actions of our day-to-day -day lives. And, and so it is appropriate for us to wrestle with this truth not being relative, but instead for us to say, Lord, I want to accept the fact that the specific application of that meaning or that passage of scripture can change. So we recognize that in this example, the meaning behind it can change over time, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't still carry meaning. The same with the 10 string liar, right? That we keep the focus and this is the art of interpretation for us. It's also appropriate for us to accept that different interpretations of scripture are inevitable. That there, are some, there is only one correct interpretation of scripture, but the task of the Christian is to seek and to study and to do the hard work of interpreting it. And at times we may have areas where we disagree. And that's where one of the great statements that has been helpful for me is that we major on the majors, minor on the minors, and in all things, lift up Christ. That's what we want to focus in on. And, and so we may differ, especially in our areas of interpretation. This was funny. At Cedarville, there was a, a chapel where, where Allie and I went to school. There was a chapel five days a week. So um, every, uh, every, every day of the week, we had chapel, Monday through Friday. And one week, uh, there, was, there were always guest speakers or often guest speakers. And one week, there was a... Um, person who came in and spoke the first day and the text that they used was the same that the person came, a separate person came and spoke on the second day. And then the third day, that, that same text was the text that the speaker used. And then fourth day, the same text. And on Friday, I remember going into my, my preaching professor and I said, this can't, these, they did not all preach the same message. Is, who's, who's, which one of them was right? And what he said was very helpful to me, and this is important for us to remember, and that is we interpret scripture accurately. We apply scripture in different ways. For some of us, it's appropriate for us to look at that. So those five, those five sermons could be accurately interpreted and communicated accurately, but the application just proved to be different. And that's okay. Do you understand how significant that can be for us? So we understand that there's an interpretation process that we need to go through to accurately understand the truth of God's word. And I want to encourage you, the third point this morning, is that you and I, we can all grow in our capacity to understand God's word. I, I love this passage. It's a hard passage in Hebrews 5.12. It says this. It says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. You know what he's saying here? He's saying, grow up. Grow up in your capacity to understand and study God's word. I uh, was leading a missions trip with high school students one time, and uh, we were talking about the trip ahead, and, and one of the students, a senior in high school, pulled me aside, and he said, hey, hey, Pastor Brennan, uh, before we leave for the trip, I just need to let you know that I only eat chicken nuggets. 
And I, I remember the, the first thought that went through my mind was, dude, you're going to starve, right? We're getting ready to go on an international missions trip. And he says, I only eat chicken nuggets. Uh, I did a little research and I think it was in the 60s that chicken nuggets were invented in a college university campus. That's fascinating, isn't it? In a laboratory. And, and so before that, if the kid only eats chicken nuggets, he's not going to survive very long, right? But, but, but the, the author of Hebrews, what he's saying here is he's saying, it's time for you to grow up. And I'm so thankful for my parents who forced me to sit at that table to learn how to cut and prepare my own food at times, right? Anybody stubborn enough to kind of try to outlast your parents on the whole broccoli battle? You guys know what I'm talking about. I'm thankful for parents that, that taught me what it meant to be a self-feeder, and, and, and to mix that over now to understanding the truth of God's word, I'm thankful for men and women in my life who've, who've shown me what it means to not only value the truth of God's word, but to work to interpret it and to apply it accurately in, in their lives. One of my favorite uh, pastors that I served underneath his, his leadership, Dr. Gary Enrig, and in California, his understanding of God's word was incredible. In fact, his knowledge and ability to cite scripture was, was, was just such a special thing to be around. And one of the things that I just realized after spending time with him is that he consistently spent time in God's word. He consistently worked to apply that truth into his life. And, and so his knowledge of the truth of God's word was a part of this process of of practicing consistently to be able to distinguish from good and evil. That's not a passive process, but it's an active, mental, engaged process. It, it does not allow us to depend on other people to always prepare the meal for us. You guys get it, right? It, doesn't, it means that we don't depend on other people always to pre-digest, pre-package, bite-sized nuggets of scriptural truth. We like that in our society today, don't we? You guys have seen it. Some of you own it, the one-minute Bible, right? Uh, I, want, I want it quick, microwave style, right? And I think this kind of understanding of God's word, the kind of interpretation that we're talking about, requires a bit more effort than that. It requires us to diligently and deliberately pursue God's word for ourselves. So I want to encourage you when it comes to accurately studying God's word, I want to fly through some of these principles that are very helpful. The first week when we talked about observation, we looked at the content of scripture. We look, we look and understand specifically what is in the text. We want to understand how to read better and to know exactly what is written in scripture, to read it accurately and to not assume wrong about what is in the text. The second thing Probably one of the most important things when it comes to understanding what is being communicated is its context. It's what we did with the, the Psalm 33 passage. And it's what we do when we take these 66 books of the Bible hung together as one book, a unified whole, that that, that context allows us to understand this truth. And every cult that's ever existed has has come as a result of individuals taking God's word out of the principle of understanding its context. So there's its literary context. What is the verse that it's in? What's the section that surrounds it? What chapter is it in? What's the book of the Bible? What's the whole book? What's the whole truth of scripture? How does it, how does it help us to understand the literary context of a passage of scripture? Another is the historical context. What was taking place? Um, what, how does this passage fit in history? What influence um, were, were, what were the influences that were upon the writer of this in its historical context? Another is the cultural context. 
Uh, next week, we're going to talk about a couple controversial passages of Scripture. We'll talk about tattoos next week. And uh, some of you are like, what? Uh, uh, you want to see mine right now? You know? um, but we're going to talk about tattoos, and we're going to talk about what the Bible does and doesn't teach about that particular subject. There's another one that we're going to run into in First and Second Corinthians, and it's a, it's a concept of head covering, and what does it mean to cover your heads in church? And, and as we study this together, one of the things that I want to do is I want to make sure that we understand that we're not just disregarding parts of Scripture because we don't like them, but we're understanding that some of these things played very significant roles in a culture and in a day that was different. So, so like one of the one of the realities is that when we study head coverings is that there were lifestyles associated with certain types of haircuts that were common in the culture that have nothing to do with your and my culture today. It's kind of like the holy kiss thing, that, that these were things that happened back in the day that it doesn't mean we disregard them altogether. We understand the principle that underlies it, but we don't necessarily have to all give each other a holy smooch at the beginning of church, right? So, so the, the idea of this is that we recognize the cultural context, the historical context, the literary context, the geographical context. Where did this take place? Does that, interpret, does that help us to interpret it accurately? Another very important thing is the theological context. What did the writer who wrote this, uh, again, inspired by the Holy Spirit, uh, what did they know about God? What is their relationship of his readers to God? How were the people worshiping God at the point of this writing? Let me, let me put this in a very specific way. So you know that at the point when the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross, that there was an incredible event that happened, that we're told that there was a curtain that was separating the Holy of Holies from the outer parts of the temple. And what we're told is that that, that, that curtain was described as being as thick as a person's hand. It was a massive curtain woven together. And what we know happened at the point of the crucifixion was that that curtain was torn, we're told in scripture, from top to bottom. And, and it's symbolic, but there's this beautiful imagery of what we learn about in the book of Hebrews, that we go from the old covenant to the new covenant, bought with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, so does that make every Old Testament passage completely irrelevant? No, it does not. But what it helps us to do is to understand theologically that there's an old covenant, covenant and a new covenant bought with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have access to the Holy of Holies. Praise the Lord for that, right? And so we celebrate the fact that there's a theological context that a passage of scripture is written in. Another step for us as we think about context that helps us to understand it is also to compare scripture with scripture, to use scripture to interpret scripture. This allows us to, to look at other times when this particular concept or idea was used in scripture so that the meaning can become apparent. What I love about this, and I want to encourage you in this, is that even the most complex challenges in interpretation can be handled well with good interpretation principles. We can address some of the figurative language and some of the frustrating things that happen in Scripture, and even controversial passages of Scripture lose some of their controversy when they are interpreted well. 
But, but above all of this, if we go back to my, my driving that RV a couple months ago, uh, I, I want to encourage you that for each one of you that this cannot be a passive experience for you. You cannot just entrust yourself to the care of a trustworthy teacher and, and depend on them to be the person who makes these decisions for you. But I believe part of the conviction that God's word sows within each one of us is to say, this needs to be personal. It needs to be a hands-on thing for us, for us to take it seriously so that we're not tossed in the wind, as the psalm says it, or that we're not allowing ourselves to be caught in a twisted generation that wants to redefine what right and wrong really is and wasn't what it isn't. So we're not discarding what scripture teaches us about how we ought to and not to live our lives. But instead, what we're saying is we want to come underneath it and live in the fullness of the understanding of that. So as we turn our hearts towards worship, we're going to do it in the way that Psalm 33, the psalmist inspired us to do, maybe without a grand piano, maybe without a 10-stringed lyre. But we're going to fill this room with praise to the one true God, because he deserves that. And I want to challenge you as you consider studying God's word for yourself, that you consider what it means for you to take this really personally, to be a self-feeder of God's word, to be a person who, if you say that you value the authority of God's word, that it actually shows up in the way you choose to live your life today. I think that's what God's calling us to do. I think that's what it means for us to be people who understand that it's not just God's word, but that it's his living word that can change us. So would you join me in prayer as we prepare our hearts for response to the Lord in worship? Lord, we love you and I thank you for your word. I thank you for the privilege it is for you to have provided for us your living word, the word of life. And I pray for each and every one of us that we would be people who commit ourselves to taking you at your word, to not just depend on others to do it for us, but to recognize that you've provided it for us, that it doesn't require a priest uh, to interpret it for us, but instead, Lord, that you've chosen to allow us to have access to your truth. Teach us to do it well. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.